Russ Baker is the kind of investigative journalist we want to help publicize on this program. His whowhatwhy.com website, which he founded in 2005, has taken a probing look at what the legendary Peter Dale Scott has called deep politics. Who, what, why digs below the surface headlines to explain what is really going on. This is hard to do if for no other reason than the fact that such reporting will run counter to narratives being spun by various powers that be. We were privileged to speak to Russ some years back, and over the years we have often quoted from the stories he brings before the public. Three recent pieces caught our attention. The first concerned the refugee crisis currently raging in Europe over the mainly Syrian population fleeing their homeland. Russ reviewed what the media has largely ignored, which is how this crisis came to be. Also, a story from a book written by an American Foreign Service worker about bizarre goings-on in Saudi Arabia in the 80s. Extremists getting visas they shouldn't have, thanks to our intelligence community. And finally, the still unexplained tale of a Saudi family who fled from Florida right after 9-11. There's so much more we could and should talk about, but we're grateful that Russ Baker is joining us at all, for he is a busy man. We're pleased to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Russ Baker. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. Russ, the story about the Syrian refugees uh, could be said to start back probably to the time of Russia's war in Afghanistan. It can also be seen as being interwoven with this strange tale about Saudi visas. Can you take us back to the 80s uh, and describe how you know, some bright sparks got the idea of using jihadists in U.S. foreign policy? Right. In fact, what I might do is just sort of start from the present and then go back, uh, because I think it's important before we start discussing history, a lot of people tune out when you talk about history. Uh, they don't fully understand how important it is to know the backstory to where we are, the fork in the road where we are, how do we get here. And so, so the fork in the road is all of these things are going on in the world. The huge numbers of refugees are swamping Europe. Uh, there's pressure on other places to some extent also to take them, and there's a lot of debate about who should take them and so forth. And there's very little discussion about why these people even are refugees, what has caused this. And right. that in itself is just, you know, it's just a tragedy that there's very little discussion of that. But, if, of course, if we look at any of these other things like the situation in the Ukraine or almost any other flashpoint in the world, there's always a backstory, and the reason I started whowhatwhy.org is because I was so frustrated with the kind of places I was working for, uh, more traditional news organizations that treated the backstory as almost you know something you, you you might if you had time you might explain, but you really wouldn't often wouldn't even bother. And so all of these things that you're bringing up uh, actually are very closely related, as is uh, the backstory to the creation of the whole sort of jihad movement, uh, the creation of al-Qaeda, uh, and then of ISIS, all of these things go back to very, very similar things. And what those things are and what they all have in common, uh, which is almost never discussed, is that foreign policy, by and large, uh, specifically American foreign policy, but also foreign policy of really most, if not all countries, is self-interest. Mm -hmm. And self-interest is actually not even the right term because the policies are not necessarily in the interests of the people of those countries so much as they're in the interests of certain uh, elements that have outsized influence and power within that society. And that gets us to another element you raised, which is Peter Dale Scott 
in his uh, analysis of uh, deep politics. Uh, I was just reading the other day uh, some excerpts from one of my favorite writers, C. Wright Mills, W-R-I-G-H-T, initial C. Wright Mills, uh, the uh, sociologist uh, who wrote uh, some very important books, including one uh, where he talked about the power elite. And this is really dealing with the fact that the policy of the United States is largely dictated by those who uh, have a lot of money, who control companies and markets and uh, have a great interest in resources and the movement of them and markets and cheap labor throughout the world. Uh, and so this is the backstory to all of these situations. And so when we look at Syria, uh, we look at a situation where uh, why are those people fleeing? Well, they're fleeing because there's a war there. And why is there a war there? Well, there's a war there because the United States and its allies played a very significant role in encouraging and then helping those who uh, created a rebellion against the central government. Now, that's not to debate the, the merits of that central government under Bashar al-Assad, but to note that, in fact, uh, we wouldn't have these refugees if it were not for this uprising largely stoked by the West. Uh, you yes. have a comparable situation in the Ukraine. Uh, you have a comparable situation in so many places. The, the situation with ISIS, uh, where uh, that is came out of Iraq, uh, the Iraq invasion, we all know now, was sold to us uh, as a bill of goods. Uh, we were not told the real reason that we were going in there. And so uh, as we track back, we see the same thing now with this with the Saudi story. And, and if we have time, I'm happy to go into each of these in much more detail. The Saudi story is a story we did at whowhatwhy.org about uh, the people we are told hijacked the planes on 9-11 and evidence we saw linking those suspects to the Saudi royal family pretty directly, I would say, astonishingly directly. Uh, and then this other story you mentioned that we've done recently, which are excerpts from a book by a former U.S. consul in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, and he tells his story of how, going way back uh, to the uh, late 70s, early 80s period, uh, he was pressured to admit, to, to allow a whole bunch of people from Saudi Arabia to give them uh, visas to go to the United States, even though he didn't believe their stories, he found it suspicious, he didn't trust where they were really going and what they were planning to do. And, of course, it was his job, ostensibly, as a consul to be suspicious and to check these things out and to make tough decisions on who he would and would not admit. And yet, as, as Michael Springman tells in his book, which we excerpt in several pieces uh, on who, what, why, dot org, he was under pressure from the uh, CIA people working in the embassy, and he stresses just how many there were, what a large percentage of the total staff were, in fact, not real diplomatic people, not real uh, people from Foreign Service Corps, but uh, people working in covert intelligence activities. And what he was witnessing, he didn't realize it at the time, was the creation of a pipeline to create the jihad, to create the army that would travel eventually to Afghanistan uh, with the goal of swamping the Soviets and creating a morass for them that they couldn't get out of. Um, and this, of course, started with people like Zbigniew Brzezinski under Carter, continued 
through the Reagan and Bush years. And again, not so much discussing the pros and cons of that strategy, but the consequences of it were that the United States effectively built this army that eventually was turned against it. And so what you see, Doug, in case after case, from the creation of what later became al-Qaeda, the creation of what later became ISIS, uh, the creation of what later became this tremendous flow of refugees, in every case we see a policy of self-interest by certain members of American and other Western elites, and then we see tremendous miscalculations on the part of their allies in the U.S. government, uh, where we face sort of constant disaster, and then these disasters, what's so interesting is that these disasters then become the justification for these needed various wars, the war on terror, the war on this, the war on that, and of course those then require us to turn over more of our own personal assets uh, in the form of of funding, Uh, and also our personal freedoms, as we're told, that there are all of these threats, and we therefore need to give up our freedom and allow the government to surveil us and to watch us and to check us and to do all of these things because of these so-called threats that endanger us. And the bottom line of all of this is that we are the suckers. We are made to uh, constantly be uh, a kind of a victim in one situation after another, to say nothing of all of these uh, people under these horrific circumstances all over the world who face much, much worse penalties than, than we ever do. But, but cumulatively, what you're seeing is the vast majority of the people really in the world suffering while a very small number of people gain. Russ, I, I want to mention that, you know, just to, to, to talk about that 1980s visa story, what we're talking about really here is how the likes of Osama bin Laden got hooked up with CIA training. And that, that's a rather important point. Oh, it absolutely is. And then as you go forward, you understand, you start wanting to look at the relationship between Osama bin Laden's family and the Saudi royal family, and then you begin looking at the relationship of the Saudi royal family and parts of the bin Laden family and important American elites. And, uh, you know, my book, Family of Secrets, which is a book about the Bush dynasty, we see the very close relationship between the Bush family and their allies. Uh, with the Saudis, and we even see all these strange things, like on the morning of 9-11, that uh, we see uh, their consigliere, James Baker, and uh, George H.W. Bush, and so forth. Uh, The day of 9-11, when we see uh, the attacks uh, purportedly carried out principally by Saudis, we see them gathering with members of people involved with the Carlyle Group, these kinds of large corporate organizations, and some of their important investors, which include people from the the Bin Laden family. Now, of course, they said that they had long been estranged from Osama, but nonetheless, there were all kinds of factions in that family, and we see all of these fascinating links. And then, of course, the backstory to how the uh, the Bush uh, group and their allies cut a deal with the Saudi royal family long, long ago, decades ago, covered extensively in my book, Family of Secrets, about how uh, they agreed to basically protect the, the Saudi royals, who are the same kind of bloodthirsty dictators that the U.S. seems to want to get rid of everywhere else, uh, and to agree to protect them and keep them in power in return for uh, some of the loot, if you will. 
Yeah, my understanding, Russ, is dating back to that uh, that that siege of the holy sites in in Mecca back in the late seventies. That a deal was really struck between the Saudi royals and the more rabid among the uh, the fundamentalists. That you know, you you stay out of the kingdom, and we will help fund your efforts uh, around the rest of the world, which I think has continued to the present time. Yes, and of course that may suggest what we're seeing with that story, uh, which we did a few years ago and recently republished on Hawaii about the. Uh, curious relationship between the Saudi royal family via a, an important Saudi family living in Sarasota, Florida, and Mohammed Atta and Ziad Jarrah and some of the other uh, alleged uh, 9-11 hijackers. Tell that story. You've been, you've been on the story. Uh, Michael Moore's mentioned it, Greg Pallast and others, but you really stayed on it and, and have a recent piece on it. Up, update where we are on, on this story. Yeah, and, and let me clarify, because a lot of this is conflated. Our story is not the same story as some of these other people have mentioned. Uh, we, we've all looked at pieces of the same issue, which is namely is, uh, you know, what is exactly is, if any, the Saudi uh, government or Saudi royal family role in 9-11? Now, Michael Moore played a very significant role in particular in bringing that to the public attention by focusing on the uh, uh, the way in which prominent Saudis were rushed out of the United States right after 9-11 instead of being interrogated or just held as anybody was in the United States. Uh, they were given a special opportunity to to leave while nobody else could fly. And that was a very important story that Michael Moore did. But I want to emphasize that our story is a completely different story. And I think if I, I hope it's not too self-serving to say that I think our story is more important because we all knew that story. Michael Moore didn't have an exclusive. That was something that, that was out there, was known that all these people had been allowed to fly. Uh, the story that we developed, and I want to credit Tony Summers and Dan Christensen, two fellows who did the initial story from Florida, what they found uh, was that an affluent Saudi family living in the Sarasota area had left their home days before 9-11, as opposed to those planes which left after 9-11. This right. is a family leaving shortly before 9-11. And so we see them leaving the Sarasota area somewhere in the in the period of a week or two prior to 9-11, but leaving in great haste. And the neighbors simply noticed that their neighbors had left, uh, noticed that they were Saudi. Now, that could, that could mean nothing at all, of course. But then uh, when investigators were able to enter the house, they discovered that the family had fled in great haste, that they had uh, by evidence by the fact that they had left almost all of their valuable belongings behind, as well as various perishable things, and just took off and left the United States, most of them never to return. That's not normal. Uh, very few people uh, leave their house with their cars in the driveway and fruit in a bowl and dirty diapers and all kinds of expensive clothing in the closets and furniture and everything, not arranging to uh, do anything with the house or with the things, but just simply to grab a computer, uh, leave a safe door hanging open, and disappear. And so it was clear that something had happened there. And further inquiries by the FBI revealed that this house had hosted at least two and possibly many more of the alleged 9-11 hijackers that they had either visited or 
made phone calls to this house or to people who made phone calls to this house. And the FBI documented that in an internal report. And then what we see is the whole thing gets hushed up <laughs> and it vanishes. Amazing that they could bury that. That's right. They buried it. And for 10 years, we heard nothing about that until uh, somehow it was leaked to journalists. And they then produced this very important story. And the story basically was that a Saudi family had fled, had connections to these 9-11 hijackers. The FBI investigated, discovered the connections, and then covered it up. Hugely important story. What we did at whowhatwhy.org, and and I think a kind of a typical role for us often is to come in on a story and help deepen it, help expand it, take it to a whole new level. And so what we did was we looked at the family, and we found out who they were, uh, not just their names, but we found out how they fit into the Saudi firmament. Uh, and we discovered that there was a young couple living there with their small children, but that the owner of the house, who's the father of the woman and the, and the father-in-law of the man living in the house, that he was a very important Saudi also living in the United States, uh, and that he was directly linked in with one of the most powerful princes of the royal family. More specifically, this man by the name of Essam Ghazawi, the owner of this house, where these hijackers were coming to, was the CEO of an important Saudi company. And the chairman of that Saudi company was Prince Sultan one of the most powerful members of the Saudi royal family and, if you will, the, the point man for aviation. And this is very important because, of course, the hijackers came to Florida to learn how to fly. And what we discovered was that Prince Sultan had come to Florida to learn how to fly long before these people came and that he had been sort of kind of the chief proponent of Saudis coming to Florida to fly. He'd gone on to become the head of uh, one of the major international airports there and of aviation in Saudi Arabia. Very significant man. And this guy is the direct boss of the man whose house was supposedly hosting these uh, flying students who turned into, allegedly, the uh, the 9-11 hijackers. So it's a tremendously important story. Uh, it's a long one. Um, it's on whowhatwhy.org right now. I think it's found on the front page. I realize, going back and reading it, how incredibly complex and dense it is, and we're thinking of re-editing it so that some of the dozens and dozens of major points in there can stand out better. One of them, sure. I, I think you'll, you'll find fascinating, is that a whole bunch of princes related to this Prince Sultan themselves died right around 9-11. They were in their 40s, and they died mysterious deaths. One died of thirst, I understand. <laughs> yeah, one died of thirst, one died of a heart attack, one died in a dentist's chair, uh, one died on the way to driving to the funeral of one of the others. Uh, it's astonishing. I mean, on, you know, uh, in any other situation, people hearing three or four examples like that would say, well, my gosh, there's something obviously going on. You know, if it was a fictional <laughs> a TV movie or something, everybody would be talking about it. And yes, this, this whole thing has had no uh, national or international discussion. Um, and then we see Prince Sultan, who uh, comes out not only totally okay, uh, but his father, who, with whom he obviously is close. The last several years, when the, when the king of Saudi Arabia dies, uh, it is his father, Prince Salman, who then becomes and is now the king of Saudi Arabia. And so this, this particular uh, faction 
of the Saudi royal family that is linked to the Osama bin Laden crew are now running Saudi Arabia. And that is just a huge story. There's no way to underestimate it. That's amazing. We, we've heard about this shakeup in the succession over there in Saudi Arabia, but uh, I was quite, quite startled to see that this does link into this whole uh, Sarasota, Florida episode. That's right. And then we find, of course, that you know, the, uh, there were several of these so-called 9-11 investigative commissions, some of them not particularly vigorous. One of the better ones was the Joint Congressional Inquiry. One of the heads of that was uh, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, former Florida Governor Bob Graham. And uh, Senator Graham, uh, now retired, you know, even back then, uh, their report had a section starting to become a little bit famous called the 28 Pages. 28 pages of their report was about Saudi Arabia, and it was uh, redacted, and they were prevented from releasing it. To this day, they're not allowed to release it. And Graham's been out there pushing, as as a retiree, pushing for those things to be released. And what's amazing is, you know, the Bush administration are the ones who um, classified it, wouldn't allow it to be released. And, and now the Obama administration, almost two terms under Obama, and they continue to block this thing. And I think one can put two and two together and realize that that report did implicate, we can even tell that from uh, Graham's statements, that it did implicate the Saudi royal family somehow in the attacks on the United States, but that somebody at a, at a high level is making a decision that they cannot allow this information to come out. And I think this again comes under the uh, heading of so-called national security, the need to maintain the Saudis in power as, as a so-called friend of the United States in the Middle East, and the need to maintain, to keep the uh, fossil fuels flowing and so forth, and they d- have decided that uh, uh, there will be too much chaos if this story is allowed to break. Well, I got to say, when you are attacked by uh, your allies, it should be news, Russ. <laughs> but <laughs> I just want to do one little aside that I thought was fascinating. That kind of that, that 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 speaks to what you have to what you're up against. That uh, that piece that you excerpted by Michael Springman, visas for Al Qaeda, CIA handouts that rock the world. It kind of mentioned in passing uh, a fellow who was. Uh, involved in some of this activity, Milt Bearden of the CIA, did some research and noted that he's apparently now a consultant to Hollywood when they're telling tales about the CIA on film. He helped George Kreil write Charlie Wilson's War, which was an entertaining film, but of course left out some rather key aspects of the so-called secret war in Afghanistan. I just want to note that when the Milt Beardens of the world are helping the media cover the news, we got problems. Yes, and you bring up an important point, Doug, and that is that entities like the CIA and and their counterparts in other countries have always understood the importance of propaganda, and you see that they have sections or departments and specialists in propaganda that uh, disseminating information in a favorable way is a key component. It's every bit as important as bribing uh, union leaders and having spies and doing sabotage and all other kind of intrigues. This sort of thing has always been considered to be of paramount importance because if you can guide the public in the direction you want them to go and you can keep them in the dark from what is really happening, then you hold an awful lot of power over them. And so uh, Hollywood has been targeted I, I'm sure from the uh, going all the way back through as long as there's been a Hollywood by 
the so-called you know military-industrial complex. It's always been targeted to get out stories that shape people's perceptions in a certain way. And that you you bring up a very important point, which is that we need to have much more of an effort to even understand how the narratives that influence us are are created. And it's not just Hollywood. It's the same thing holds true with the world of the media, news media. It holds true with publishing in general. It holds true with academia. All the different forms of storytelling. We now see a big CIA presence uh, in Silicon Valley uh, where there's a tremendous amount of interest of of getting uh, people into all of these tech companies because of the role that those tech companies now play in shaping our understanding of how things work. Good God. Russ, you spent a lot of time on on, on who, what, why, uh, outlining these links between the CIA, the Saudi royals, fundamentalist groups like Al-Qaeda, and now ISIS. Uh, anyone who's trying to sort this out from the headline news is going to get confused. You've gone a long way to unraveling some of these links, but I know this is a question that could probably take a half hour to answer, but I would just say, what do you think is the most important aspects about this story that the public needs to keep in mind? Well, if you, when you say story, if you're talking about this sort of meta story that meta I story, articulated yes. at the beginning, I would say it is this. The world is not so much this complicated, chaotic place that we fear. And by the way, our fear and our sort of being overwhelmed by all the bad news and all of these things that just seem to come out of nowhere and seem to threaten us, and make us stick our heads in the sand. The reason we anesthetize ourselves so much with so much television, spectator sports, alcohol and drugs, and fantasy content and so forth, on and on and on, um, is because it's a psychological and a physiological reaction to the stuff that is hitting us. But once you begin to seek a coherent understanding, and you see that there is actually logic, rationality, predictability, structure, uh, patterns behind these things, you begin to, in a strange way, sort of almost kind of calm down. You're, you're better able to focus. You realize who's pulling the wool over our eyes. You realize who might not pull the wool over our eyes, what needs to be done, and so forth. The, the, the secret to fixing things and to creating... Uh, a better society and a better country, better policy, electing better leaders, and regaining control over our lives individually and cumulatively is knowledge and awareness. And it really comes from finding the time to study these things and to and to seek out uh, the unfortunately limited uh, sources for a good analysis. Well, Russ, in, in closing, I want people, if they haven't ever done so, uh, so far, to go to your website, whowhatwhy.org, uh, and, and start maybe with the article you wrote, Who Caused Europe's Refugee Mess? Why We Did. I think people are interested in this. Um, and I want to give you a chance, too, to ask for help on your site, which is independent and uncensored, because it is supported by readers. Thank you very much. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we don't even take ads. That means that every penny that keeps us going comes from readers and listeners, and we're very grateful for any tax-deductible donations that come our way. Uh, we also rely a lot on volunteers, although we do try to pay our writers and our core editors. And uh, we welcome uh, people with skills in any of a huge number of different areas that any kind of organization might need. We'd love to hear from them, and all the contact information can be found on our 
uh, homepage at whowhatwhy.org, as can uh, information about uh, following us on Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms. We've been speaking with investigative journalist Russ Baker, founder of whowhatwhy.org. We encourage everyone to go to the site and offer all the support that one can. Russ, we've only scratched the surface of what valuable information you've posted and what we could talk about, but I hope you'll keep up the good work and I hope you'll come again because you're always welcome on this program. Well, I appreciate it. Good luck to you too, Doug, and uh, let's stay in touch. Very good. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. <laughs>